boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But the disciples saw him walking on the sea. They were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to walk to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God, the Word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, my name is Ransom Kent. I'm the pastor here. And uh, I want to welcome everybody uh, who is visiting, welcome everybody online. Uh, we're going to be uh, continuing our series this morning, The Message and the Power of the Messiah. Before I jump in, allow me to pray for us. Father in heaven, truly, you save. You save us. And I pray this morning that we would hear that message for us, whether we've been a Christian for many years, our entire lives, whether we are new to it, whether it's something we're seeking out, I pray that this morning, uh, that would be the thing that we pull away from this, your spirit talking to our hearts, showing us how you are what we need, you are the one that saves. We pray in the name of the one who saves us, Jesus, amen. So a little context here. Just before this particular passage occurs, before this story happens, Jesus has been ministering for a while. Uh, he needs rest. And so it says that he, he, he looks to go away and get away and kind of pray and recharge. Well, somehow rumor got out that he was going to a particular place. And when he shows up there, there are 5,000 men plus women and children waiting for him. And it says that he had compassion on them uh, and he began to heal. And so even though in his exhaustion, uh, he begins to heal and teach. Uh, and so, again, uh, another, last week we looked at some good leadership qualities of Jesus. I think this is another one. Uh, he didn't say scram. He, he pressed in where there was a need, uh, even though he was tired. Uh, and so what happens is uh, that he goes on healing, he's teaching, the day grows late, and the people are hungry. And so he tells the disciples, hey, go feed these people. And they say, We're, we can't go to town and get groceries for 5,000 people plus women and children. And this is where we get the, the instance where they say all we have are these five loaves and these two fish. And Jesus takes those five loaves and those two fish and miraculously, he, on a molecular level, regenerates more of the same. He, he multiplies it and he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. It's incredible. It's incredible. And so what happens just after that is the people want to make Jesus king. It makes sense. Who wouldn't want magic food guy as your king, right? Especially in ancient culture, 
When food can be scarce, when, when finding food or feeding your family can really be a struggle, they don't care who Jesus is. All they know is He can make food out of little food. He can make great food. And so they, they, want, they, they want Jesus to be king. And what Jesus does, it's not His time. And what He does is we see in verse 22 and 23 is He breaks up the party. In verse 22, it says, immediately He made the disciples get into the boat and go before Him. He says, all right, disciples, get out of here. Go ahead. I'm going to break up the crowd. And then in verse 23, and he had dis, after he had dismissed the crowds, Jesus finally goes up and gets the rest that he's been seeking. He goes up and he prays to the Father. He finds solace in, in intimacy with God. So what we can see here is that, first of all, Jesus uh, is, we're getting kind of this outward visual of a very intimate moment. The, this passage does not tell us what, he, what the experience he has with God on the mountain. Some scholars think maybe he went up on the mountain to pray against the temptation to become king. That would have made things a lot easier for Jesus if you think about it. And if you look at the temptation of Christ in Matthew 4, what's one of the things that Satan tempts Jesus with? If you could become king and it could be all over. So that's one thing people think. Um, others think it's just a time for him to find solace with his father. Either way, we learn from Jesus himself that prayer is essential to the mission. Prayer is essential. He, has, he goes not to take a nap. He goes to pray. He goes to pray to his Father. And so while he's praying, the disciples have obeyed Christ. They've been compliant. They're rowing to the other side. And what happens? Uh, a typical Galilean squall. So the, the Sea of Galilee is around certain mountain structures and it's very shallow. So it has this tendency for wind to, to suddenly come upon it, and it causes big waves. It, it gets really whipped up very quickly, kind of like Lake Erie, if you're familiar. Um, but they find themselves trapped on the sea without Jesus. That's the context we find ourselves in first thing. So Jesus has dispersed the crowds after feeding the 5,000. He's gone up the mountain to pray. As he finishes his time with God the Father, the disciples are very far away in the very middle of the Sea of Galilee, stuck in an issue, stuck in a big problem. The question then is asked, well, so what? <laughs> what does this story have anything to do with me? Sir, sure, it's great. He walks on water. Fantastic. Great. He fed 5,000 people. What does this have to do with me? Well, this story, as I've studied this week, I believe this story is perfect for anyone who's ever had a difficult time. <laughs> so if you have ever had doubts in your faith, you've ever been afraid, you've ever faced an exhausting situation that you feel like will never end, you've ever felt far away from Christ, you've ever found yourself in a situation that you didn't ever think would happen, or if you're just asking the question, who is Jesus, I think I've covered everybody, this story's perfect for you. It has so much to offer us, myself included. And so what we're going to do, the way I'm, I'm going to unpack this truth is uh, this story is unique in that there are, is this quick cycle from fear to relief, fear to relief, fear to relief. And in this story, there are four moments of, of unique fear. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at each one of those moments of need or fear and then ask the question, what does it have to say to us in our lives? So let's take a look at the first moment of fear or need. Verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way from land. The, that, that phrase, long way from land, um, is actually a, it's like sort of a specific measurement, 
but what, we, what the, the author is trying to communicate is they're basically in the very center of the Sea of Galilee. They're not near any shore. They're in the middle of the sea. And then what happened? They were beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. The, this word beaten and this word against are the same words that you would use if you were talking about torturing someone. So what are the waves uh, doing? What's the wind doing? It is physically um, torturing the disciples. They're rowing against something that seems impossible to get past. What, is the, what are the wind and waves doing? They're against them. They are causing them emotional distress. And so while the word fear isn't used in these two verses we can understand that this situation is not a pleasant one for the disciples. Now, they've been here before, and, and Jacob just sang about it. They, they've been in the, the sea of Gal, on the Sea of Galilee when a storm whipped up before. Remember in Matthew 8, what happened? That Jesus is asleep in the bow. They run into a storm, and what do they yell at Jesus? Don't you care if we die or not? And so we know this kind of storm and what it causes emotionally in the disciples, but this time it's different. Why is it different? Jesus isn't there. He's not there. They're stuck in this storm alone without Jesus. It says at the beginning of verse 25, uh, and in the fourth watch of the night, understand this is the, the time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So they've not been rowing for an hour. They've been rowing all night long, all night long. In the middle of the sea, in the early hours of the morning, they can't go any further. They're exhausted. They're wondering possibly how much longer they can keep up this pace. But it's beautiful. Jesus comes to them. It says, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Michael Green uh, says it this way, that Jesus wasn't just walking on top of the water, he was walking on top of the storm. Think about that. It's not a, a, a glassy situation. Jesus is walking on top of this blustery Galilean storm. And so what, what's happening? How is Jesus walking? He's demonstrating the same thing he demonstrated as he took five loaves and two fish and multiplied them molecularly. He's doing the same thing here. He's showing that he has control, power over the very physical properties of water. Now, for those of you who may think, well, how is this possible? Like, how could somebody walk on water? Can, can be serious. Think about this. If Jesus is who the Bible says he is, if, if he is the one through whom God created all things, how far of a jump is it for him to create water, let alone walk on it? Job, talking about the glory of God, says this, speaking of God, he who stretched out the heavens and trampled on the waves of the sea. <laughs> trampled on the waves, walks on the sea. It's not an unusual thing if you think of Jesus as who he is, God in the flesh, for him to say, I'm going to walk on water. For us, it's incredible. For him, it's part of his nature. So this is our first moment of fear. The disciples are alone in the middle of a storm. And what happens? Jesus walks out to them. And as you can see here in, in verse 26, he calls out to them. Oh no, sorry, verse 27. We're not there yet. I'm jumping ahead. So think about this. They're in the middle of the sea. Jesus is coming to them. Their rescue is coming. And we get our second moment of fear. Look at verse 26. I love this. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. I'm pretty sure it was really high-pitched and kind of embarrassing. It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Ah! Right? Maybe like Will would do. Um, I don't know. Sorry, man. Um, but these poor guys, think about this. These poor guys, they're, they, they're exhausted. They're terrified. 
And now there's this scenario occurring they've never seen before. Now, most of the research I saw said that it wasn't common belief that once you die, there is this ability for your soul to wander the earth as a ghost. There wasn't common, but think about this. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and they see something walking towards them. There's no other explanation in their minds other than this is some kind of crazy wacky scenario and so they go with this must be a ghost maybe they think they're dead already maybe they think they're about to die who knows but they are terrified they're terrified this would have been a mind-blowing terrifying experience and i think rightly they cry out in fear the 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 literal translation is they uttered aloud in horror and so they believed in some sense they were probably in danger whatever this thing was the storm was danger this thing is probably danger danger If you think about the psychology of fear, what is fear? Fear is the moment you realize you're incapable of overcoming your circumstances. Danger. Danger. I can't do anything about this. And so as soon as you realize, I can't do anything about this, what do you feel? Fear, anxiety, distress. And so, if we're having empathy on these men, we would have done the same thing. It would have been an absurd situation. Absurd. Somebody's walking on the water towards us in the middle of this crazy storm. And so the disciples in that moment, what do they realize? They are powerless against not only wind and waves, they're powerless against whatever this thing is. They're powerless. The ghost appearing make the disciples realize their powerlessness. So I love this because in the face of their powerlessness, in the face of their exhaustion, Jesus It says, immediately revealed his identity. 27, immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Now there's a reason that's a little awkward. We'll talk about it in a minute. Do not be afraid. Take heart, it is I. It is I. Why wouldn't he say it is me? The word that Jesus is using here, and this is where we can see things in the original language that we tend to gloss over in the English language. Jesus is using the same word here that was used for God in the Old Testament. When God referred to himself, He would say, I am. I am. And so Jesus here is, in a sense, hinting pretty heavily at the fact that He is, I am. Don't fear, I am is here. That would have rhymed. So maybe if you thought about it, maybe that would have been better to say. But uh, don't, don't fear, I am is here. He is saying that the divine God, Jesus, God in the flesh, is here. And what is His command? Do not fear. You see, think about what's happening. The disciples feel their powerlessness. That is worthy of fear. The storm is worthy of fear. If the storm, if it's just between the storm and the disciples, who's going to win? The storm. If it's just between a ghost and the disciples, who's going to win? The ghost. They have no power. But when Jesus showed up and He is declaring, I am, who now has the advantage? Jesus. Jesus. The disciples were powerless. Jesus is not. And the same goes for us as we face scenarios that should cause us fear. In all natural sense, there are scenarios that are bigger than us. They should cause us fear, cause us distress. When Christ is with us, when we are with Christ, they have, there's no match there. We are not at a match for the wind and the waves of our lives. Jesus Christ 100% is. I keep loving this story more and more because now that we know who Jesus is, we get some good old-fashioned Apostle Peter in the mix. It's great. Look at this. Verse 28. 
And Peter answered him. So the fear is gone. Peter's back to being his bold self. I'm guessing he screamed the loudest and the highest, right? Peter answered, Lord, if it is you, a better way to read that is since it is you. Lord, since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. This is bonkers. Jesus is walking on the water. They've never seen anything like this. They've never seen anything like this. And now Peter, in his boldness, is saying, I want to do this as well. Lord, call me out on the water. I'll do the same thing. Now, there's a lot of differing opinions on what, uh, is, what Peter's actually doing here. Some scholars believe he's being foolhardy and pompous. I want to be like you, Lord. But if we, we look at the context, we look at the, kind of the, the tenor of what Matthew is writing here, Matthew sees Peter as kind of the best and the worst example in this story. And in this case, this takes courage to step out of the boat onto water and to, to believe that you can walk on it is an act of faith. And so I think we should think about that as well. Matthew's being gutsy and courageous and dependent on Christ. He says, if you command me, I'll come out. He didn't say, hey, watch this, guys. And so what's great is this leads us to our next fearful moment. So again, remember, they're, they're stuck in the storm without Christ. That is a moment of distress. It was torturous and exhausting. Jesus comes to them. They, they have this, this scenario in their mind. This must be a ghost. Jesus comforts them. Here we have our third moment of fear. Peter becomes afraid of specifically the wind. Look at verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. R.T. France calls this an object lesson for us. An object lesson for when we're tempted to take our eyes off Christ and to, quote, take more notice of the threatening circumstances all around us. So Peter is watching Jesus. As he sees Jesus walk, he has the boldness to say, call me out there. That, that's, that is courage. That is faith. And as soon as he's out there, the wind is blowing so hard, he takes his eyes off of Christ, and suddenly the wind, he realizes, more, is more powerful than Peter. And factually, is it? Yes. The wind was powerful, and Peter became afraid of it. Leon Morris says this, this is an example of the problems that arise when doubt replaces trust. This is an example of the problems that arise when doubt replaces trust. Was the wind there before? Yes. Was the wind there after? Yes. What's the difference? Looking at Christ and trusting Christ, or looking at yourself and thinking about your circumstances in a different light. When we replace trust of Christ with doubt, our circumstances don't change. Our view of our circumstances change. You see? It's different. It, either, either you are vulnerable to the wind, but Christ has you, or you're vulnerable to the wind, and nobody has you. And so at some point, Peter stops looking at Christ. They don't know how long he walked or how far he walked. And all he could see was wind. And Jesus, in verse 31, diagnoses the problem. He says, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That word doubt means to try and move in two separate directions at once. Peter, trying to trust the Lord and trying to trust himself, trying to trust the Lord and also trying to overcome his circumstances by himself. Peter versus the wind, that's a no-win situation. Jesus versus the wind, that's a no-brainer. Who wins the day on that one? Jesus, every time. Peter, in that moment, when his focus fell from Christ to the wind, 
he realizes his need. Just like the disciples in the storm in the middle of the sea realize we can't go past this. This, this, these waves are beating against us. And just like when they thought they saw a ghost, they realized we can't overcome that. Peter, in those circumstances, realizes I can't overcome this wind. This wind is more powerful than me. Which brings us to our fourth moment of fear, the second part of verse 30. Peter was panicked as he sank, so his, his fear quickly went from wind to water. It says, Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Peter versus the wind was a losing match. Peter definitely versus the water in this choppy sea was a losing match. And he only had one recourse. And what was that? And if we're going to emulate something, if we're going to mimic something of Peter in this story, let's mimic this. He had one thing to do. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. He had one option. He couldn't tread water long enough. He couldn't hold his breath long enough. He needed Jesus. And then we see that in verse 32, excuse me, the end of verse, speaking of verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, and in verse 32, they get back in the boat, and what happens? The wind ceases, the storm stops. Jesus overcame. He didn't just walk on the storm, he stopped the storm. Then we get the response, verse 33. Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. What is their response? Jesus is God. That's their response. You're God. You don't worship things that aren't God in this culture. You don't worship things that aren't divine. They saw his multiplying of bread and fish. They saw his command over the physical properties of water. They saw him save Peter. They saw him command the storm to be quiet. And there was only one conclusion. You are God in our midst. Wouldn't be, wasn't the first time they worshipped him. It wouldn't be the last. So as we look at this cycle of fear and relief, uh, what stuck out to me as I was studying this week is that their fear exposes their need, and we've hinted at it a bunch, but I want you to try and follow me on this. Each of the situations that the disciples found themselves in, either stuck in the middle of the sea in a storm, or facing a ghost, or, or the wind, or the water, every single one of those situations was technically, factually bigger than the disciples. It was bigger. They had no power to stop or change those circumstances. Hence their fear. In in other words, being with Jesus didn't make them capable. Do you hear my words? Think about Peter. He's the greatest example. Peter didn't walk on water because his faith in Jesus gave him superhuman powers. He didn't believe in Jesus and suddenly he had the ability to walk on water. That wasn't in him. That was all about Jesus. So Peter, whether he was on the water or under the water, was in the same amount of danger if it was up to Peter. So this quick succession of fear and relief again and again teaches us something, and that is about the disciples. The disciples had an absolute dependence upon Christ, and it never changes once in this story. They needed Jesus as much as when he was with them as when they were without him. Peter needed Jesus as much on top of the water as in the water. He needed it as much as the wind was blowing and he didn't care, and when the wind was blowing and he did care. They have an absolute dependence upon Christ and it never changes once in good or bad whatever situation. 
The disciples' need for Jesus never changes in the story. And as we take that little nugget and we apply it to our lives, here's what it means for us. Our circumstances, good or bad, do not change our continuous need for Jesus. Our circumstances don't change the fact that minute by minute, second by second, we are in desperate, utter, drowning need of Jesus Christ. Most world religions hold a core belief that that the common human experience is suffering. Suffering. Um, Hinduism and Buddhism hold this very clearly. And uh, back in 2013, I had the opportunity to go to Burma uh, with some folks from my old church, and we were able to teach in a seminary. It was quite a cool experience. Um, On the way home, I had a day and a half layover in Thailand, in Bangkok. And I'm a religion nerd, and so I was like, I'm going to go see some temples. That's what I did. So, super fun day of temple watching. Um, And I remember of all the temple watching I did that day, there was one temple that is just stuck in my mind, and I'll never forget it. And so imagine uh, about this half of our sanctuary, a circle, and about as tall as that beam up there, a dome. It was a circular building, nothing inside, a dome. And as you looked at the wall painted around the circle, imagine painted on this mural every awful thing you could think of humans doing to one another. Okay, so here at eye level is the, the awfulness of the world. And it was graphic. It was... It was disturbing. It's probably why I still remember it. But then as you picked your eyes up to the dome, what was up there? These enlightened characters who had risen above the suffering simply by ignoring it. They're on the lotus position. They're floating on clouds. And by putting their mind off of the suffering, they escaped it. How great is that? Well, here's the deal. They're right. That, that religion is right about one thing. Life and they're honest and accurate about it. I think that's, that's good. Life is hard. Life is full of suffering. We have situations that beat against us, that feel torturous. We have moments of fear. We have moments of faith and doubt. We face life-threatening situations. We face suffering. We face persecutions. But they miss one important thing. The most important thing. You can't just ignore it. <laughs> Ignoring it does nothing. Positive thinking does nothing. What is the only thing that gives us something to deal with that imagery? The fact that Jesus saves. Jesus saves. One iteration of this sermon, every point, point one through four, was Jesus is Lord. (laughs) Point one, Jesus is Lord. Point two, Jesus is Lord. Point three, Jesus is Lord. Point four, guess what? Jesus is Lord. That's, That's what's going on here. Our security... And our lives doesn't come from our resources or our mentality. That's not where, where, where security comes from. You see, we can't rise above this thing called life. We can't. There's no escape from it. And praise the Lord, God doesn't leave it up to us to do that. You see, God, the double negative, is never not in charge. He's never not in charge. And His promises never tire. His promises never fail. His promises never are not true. And in the same way, if you look at the flip side of that coin, you and me, church, you and me, we are never not in need. A lot of double negatives. We are never not in need. Just thinking back to the outreach seminar we had a couple weeks ago. One of my prayers 
as your pastor is that as we go out into the community and interact with people in need, whether that's financial need or emotional need or spiritual need or whatever kind of need you can think of, my prayer is that we don't go there thinking we've got the resources to give. My prayer is that as we interact with all kinds of different people with all kinds of different need, we remember we are exactly the same. We're exactly the same. We always need Jesus. Whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're a positive person or a negative person, whether you're reformed or some other version of Christianity, whether you are Christian or not, guess what? We're all the same in the fact that we always need Jesus. We can't just ignore our suffering. We can't. And the good news is we don't have to. We don't have to rise above it. That's not the point of life. Rising above suffering is not why we're here. In fact, as Christians, what can we do? We can confidently walk through really, really, really impossible situations. Not like tough guys, oh, I got this. No. Because we know Jesus Christ already overcomes it. He walks on the storm. He walks on it. And as we keep our eyes on Him and we remember that He is all we need, that's how we walk through impossible, difficult, unbelievable situations in this life. In fact, it gets better than that. God doesn't call us out of our suffering. That's, a, that's the bad news. The good news is, is He's joined us in it. This is the only religion in the world, church. Christianity. True Christianity that says God didn't stay up here and say, hey, here's how you get out. I'm up here. He came into it for us and with us. He he uses suffering to grow our dependence on Him, and He suffers with us. Think about Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Listen to this. Surely, speaking of Jesus, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And what? With his wounds, we are healed. He suffers with us. He suffers for us. Brian Chappell says, you know, why does God do that? Because God delights in helping the needy. Praise his name. He delights in helping the needy. And guess what? We're one of those. So we've unpacked this continuous need that we have for Christ, the question then is, what do we do about it? What's our role? What are we asked to do? I've got four very quick things. First of all, we're asked to recognize our neediness. That's what we're asked to do. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount. Where does our discipleship start? In our bankruptcy. (laughs) That's where discipleship starts. Not your list of skills and and resources. You are... Only to the poor in spirit does the kingdom of God belong. Our utter bankruptcy, I have nothing, is where discipleship starts. We need to recognize and believe and press into the fact that we need Christ always and forever. And the reality is, church, many of us, many of us are too content with our lives. We're too content. Oh, I feel pretty good. Got a job I like, got this and that. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. 
Second thing, so we've got to recognize our neediest. The second thing we're asked to do is obey Christ. Obey Christ. That's exciting, right? Let's go back to the passage. Who put the disciples in, in these situations? Jesus said, go out without me. Go to the sea. They were compliant. They obeyed. They went, and they were, they were supposed to be when they were stuck in the middle of the sea. Who said to, to Peter, come out of the boat? Jesus. So first of all, we have to understand that at, that at many times, most situations, obedience will lead to at least some discomfort. Boy, that's fun to think about. But we have to also jettison this completely false notion that somehow if we live the right way, we're going to end up with a pleasant, happy life. That's not in the Bible. That if you just act right, God's going to do right. That's health wealth, folks. But it's okay. Because the best place to be is in the center of God's will, even when it's difficult. Even when it's difficult. Listen, I read a quote from Sinclair Ferguson this week and hit, cut me to the core, ripped my heart out, and stomped out on the floor. So I'm going to read it to you. And um, Listen, you have to let this be true. You have to let this convict you. Listen to this. Our problem does not lie in the parts of Scripture we find difficult to understand. We turn away from the Word of the Lord that we do understand. We do not read it. We do not love it. We have become almost incapable of meditating on it. We are careless, if not actually callous, about submitting to the Word of God. That's one of our biggest problems, church, is we, we say, man, I'm struggling. I just don't know what to do. In fact, if we read the Scriptures... It's called the perspicuity of Scripture. It's clear what God wants us to do. The problem is we don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. I'm with you on that one. We don't want to do it. So as we live this life, we recognize our neediness and we follow Christ doing what He asks us to do because there's no other source. There's no other way. And as we falter and sink, because guess what? We're not going to do that perfectly. Amen? That's not happening. We're going to sink, and we have to emulate Peter in those moments. The third thing we're called to do is to call out to Christ. And I love uh, from Mark 9, the father of the sick child, when, when Jesus says, you simply have to believe, and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. That's where I'm at most days. Because guess what? My faith is never pure. Never pure. There's always at least a little bit of doubt riddling my faith. Rarely do I believe without some. Doesn't mean we don't work to eradicate it. Doesn't mean we wallow in our doubt. It just means doubt should be expected. Sin should be expected. But the good news is in this story is that Jesus didn't let Peter drown. Lord, see you, sucker. Like, it's not how it worked. In his failure, Jesus reached out and grabbed Peter's hand and brought him back to the boat. Yes, I did bubble words with my mouth, okay? Um, our salvation and survival of times of doubt doesn't depend on us. It depends on Jesus. We need to cry out to Him. Jesus, save me in my doubt. Save me from my sin. We cry out to the One upon whom our salvation depends. The last thing 
looking at how the disciples responded to Christ, our call is to renew our trust in him over and over and over again, especially in those times of doubt, especially in those times of fear and failure, when your circumstances seem impossible, when things seem difficult, when it seems like they'll never end, when you're asking, where is Christ? You must throw yourself and worship at the feet of Jesus Christ. That's the first place to go. Throw yourself and worship, reminding yourself, who is Jesus? Who is he? He's God. He walks on the storm. So, when are those opportunities? I mean, every week we have the Lord's Supper here. That's an opportunity weekly to do that. But church, we need more than that. We need a daily renewal of our trust in Jesus Christ. And how does that happen? By spending time with him daily in word and prayer. It's not something that impresses him. It's something we need. It's a refocusing on Christ. Being in his word, being in prayer is saying, Jesus even prayed in his ministry. We need it. We need to renew that daily. Those of you who either are listening online or here, maybe you don't know Jesus Christ, I want to be really negative for a moment, (laughs) and then I'm going to give you some relief. The first thing I want to say is, you shouldn't expect life circumstances to get much better. You shouldn't expect that. Positive thinking, uh, hoping for the best, planning for the worst, these kinds of things don't change your circumstances. Your circumstances are bigger than you. They're bigger than you. We control very little, if anything, in our lives. So the truth here is you can't meditate your we- yourself to enlightenment. You, those, those uh, whatever they're called, the, the enlightened ones in that temple, that's not how it works. You can't pull yourself up and float up above the suffering of your life. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And just like people in the church, what must we do? We must go continuously to the one who suffers for us, Jesus Christ. So the only answer is not, well, today might be better, or 2021, I've got it on this one, I've got it on lock. There's no answer like that. The answer is, Lord, save me. That's it. Lord, save me. The same answer for the church is the same answer for the world. Our only hope is, Lord, save me. Jesus saves. That's it. If that's something you'd like to know more about, if that's something that intrigues you, I'd love to talk to you more about that. There's nothing more I'd rather spend my week on than that. So reach out to the church office, whatever. If, if this is your scenario, if you're saying, I need that kind of secure salvation to carry me through this world and into eternity, I want to talk to you about that. Let me pray for us. Lord, whether we are preaching or listening, we need you. (laughs) Whether we studied this passage all week or we are hearing it for the first time this morning in this particular format, we need you. Whether this has been a good week by worldly standards or a bad one, we need you. Whether we are healthy this morning or sick, we need you. Whether we had an argument with our spouse this morning, or we didn't, we need you. Whether our kids obey or not, we need you. Whether we're worried about debt or not, we need you. There's no scenario that I could, I could go on and on and on. There's no scenario that would keep us from 
our absolute, perpetual, continuous, absolute drowning need of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, not by my words, but by your Holy Spirit, impress that on all of our hearts, mine included, just how much we need you. Just how much. Just how much we run away from you. We want to think we can overcome the storm. We want to think we can be uh, tough through hard times. It's, the truth is we can't and we're not. We need Jesus. We need his cross. We need his resurrection. We need his ascension. We need his deity. We need all of it. We're helpless. We're pitiful without it. So this morning as we approach the table, I pray that this would be our experience, that we are awash with our neediness. We're awash with the fear, even the doubt of all the things in this life that could and should overtake us, but then we remember what Christ provides Himself. He pulls us out of the water. He answers our call, Lord, save me. So I pray that those things are true this morning. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, the only Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.